Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, this is The Schwepp, and today we're speaking with Ferdinando Buscema, a magical experience designer who has kindly agreed to speak with us about certain aspects of magic. Ferdinando, it's a pleasure to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I did something which I don't usually do for this talk, because the reason I wanted to talk to you specifically is not just because it's always a pleasure to talk to you and you have a fascinating view on things, but because of something that happened with the Schwepp podcast. So I'm just going to read you this little uh, thing I wrote up, and this will kind of set the stage. So in 1885, we're going to have to go all the way back to the 19th century, but we can do that. In 1885, a report was published in the Proceedings of the Society for Psychical Research. Now, these are people who are engaged. These are scientists engaged in trying to figure out if uh, things like seances and stuff like that are real somehow. Entitled, Report of the Committee Appointed to Investigate Phenomena Connected with the Theosophical Society often known as the Hodgson Report. You can find it online, and we'll link to it. The Society had founded a new headquarters in Adyar, India in 1878, and lots of miraculous stuff was being reported from Adyar. Uh, Not only were the Tibetan masters kind of materializing and appearing in their astral forms, but Madame Blavatsky was producing letters from these Mahatmas, which often materialized out of thin air in front of witnesses or or fell on top of people's heads as though they just materialized above them. Uh, a bunch of other seance-esque stuff was happening, like mysterious noises that no one could account for and this sort of thing. Now, the Hodgson report was damning. It found that the Mahatma letters were actually by Blavatsky herself, that the shrine at Adyar had been arranged with a secret sliding panel at the back, which would allow letters to materialize sort of on the altar right? And this report finishes its introductory section with these memorable lines about the great Madame Blavatsky, quote, For our own part, we regard her neither as the mouthpiece for hidden seers, nor as a mere vulgar adventuress. We think that she has achieved a title to permanent remembrance as one of the most accomplished, ingenious, and interesting impostors in history. End of quote. Now, we fast forward to 2022. Uh, I did an interview, which we published in the Schwepp podcast, called Marina Alexandrova Introduces Madame Blavatsky. And in this interview, Dr. Alexandrova indeed introduces the fascinating founder, co-founder of the Theosophical Society, who's by any account a ridiculously accomplished, multifaceted, interesting figure who had tons of adventures and, you know, was really cool. And... Alexandrova takes a very sympathetic line towards Blavatsky. Yes, she used some stagecraft and so forth to boost her reputation for access to occult knowledge, but this was a strategy to bring people into the search for truth that lay at the heart of what theosophy was all about. Yes, her works are mostly a kind of mashup of other people's work, so what you might call plagiarism, but Blavatsky always claimed merely to be a conduit for the perennial wisdom, right? So she's never saying, I'm an original author. So it's okay that she's plagiarizing other people. Plus, the Hodgson report, according to her, is biased and flawed. Now, one last thing to add to this. An alert listener named Davide Marino, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He might be a David, he might be a Davide. We'll let that slide. He wrote in with a long and very well thought out critique of Alexandrova's presentation of Blavatsky. He pointed out, to summarize, that Blavatsky was definitely up to some sneaky stuff. And the interview had sort of glossed over that stuff or minimized it. And he's right. 
But the most important thing he said, to my mind, was the following. Quote, I believe that the most interesting aspect of occultist identity formation is how they are paradoxical and ambiguous characters. The fascination for these people comes precisely from their ambiguity. To me, esotericists are always both charlatans and sincere. Describing them as noble heretics ignores the tragic beauty of these authors, in my opinion. End of quote. Now, I found those to be wise words. And this is precisely why I wanted to talk to you, Ferdinando, because this exchange about Blavatsky, but applicable to a lot of other stuff we talk about, like magic more generally, is pointing to a world where illusion meets reality, which is the world that you inhabit professionally and I think uh, kind of philosophically. And I think you have some very, very interesting perspectives to bring to this conversation. What does stage magic, the craft of illusion, the craft of creating the appearance of the miraculous, have to teach us about real magic, the genuinely miraculous? Wow, that's a big intro. That's a lot of uh, meaty, juicy stuff to start with. So let's see where where we can start our conversation into this uh, labyrinthine sponge uh, that we call reality, you know, that, that's a, that's a big, that's a big deal. So again, I'm, I'm happy of having this conversation with you, which is always a way for me to explore and verbalize and to try to make sense of these elusive notions, which even for me, as you said, I, I mean, I professionally inhabit this world, but you know, I fairly say that for me, it's, it's an ongoing exploration of mystery. So I didn't figure things out. Uh, maybe just because this is my professional playground, I know a thing or two. I, I think I got a kind of a grasp, you know, not to shy away, not to, to feel humble or uh, it's not fake, humble or humility. But again, me, myself, I'm trying to wrap my head around all of this all the time. So again, it's an ongoing struggle. It's an ongoing battle with the notion of ambiguity for someone who tries to uh, present and to invite others, again, professionally or otherwise, into this space of unknown, of mystery, of wonder. So it's different. Yeah, it's a multidimensional hall of mirrors, if you wish, that if you do this professionally, hopefully the end goal is some sort of wonder and entertainment. So it's supposed to make this overall experience even pleasant and amusing and entertaining. But when we are wrestling with magic, the notion of magic itself is pretty unsettling. It's something that evokes, you know, wonder and awe. It's at the same time, it's the mysterium fascinans and tremendum, as uh, the latents used to say. So it's not all roses and, uh, and glitter and fun. Mm. So with this said, yes, if we're talking about magic, you know, magic, even the word itself is kind of, you know, weird and strange to use the word magic. You know, is magic real? Do you believe in magic? It's a very odd question to ask someone. So we need, especially in our, you know, modern or postmodern contemporary world, we needed to use extra tags in order to address the notion of magic. So officially, I am a, I am a magician, but for the society that we live in, I am a stage magician. Right. So I am an entertainer who uses trickery to entertain people who should be wise enough to know that what I'm doing are tricks. 
So let's just put a little bit of boundaries to this, right? I'm not a real magician. This is what officially my business title says. But again, the, the, just as you, you know, brilliantly and very articulately said in your introduction, the boundaries between what's real and what's not, what's illusion and what's not, are not that clear cut. So even invoking the idea that people like Madame Blavatsky or other gurus or other uh, saints coming from very different traditions, using trickery in order to trigger something in their bystanders, that at some point they, at some point they start to be called an audience, right? Which, again, it's another way of saying, I'm doing something for your own amusement, for your own entertainment, but just be aware at some level of your mind that this is a trick, so you can be safe. There is more to that. So I would say that I would just start with a little bit of a historical context. Whatever nowadays we call magic tricks, which, again, we witness in a more or less formal theatrical context, again, it could be a theater, so you go, you pay a ticket to buy and go and see a show, so you know that in the bubble, in the time, in the space-time frame of a two-hour show, sitting comfortably in a theater with a glass of wine in your hand, you're going to see crazy shit, but when the show is over, you go back home kind of, you know, safe, nothing bad happened, hopefully it's been amusing. It's not always been like that. So historically, what nowadays we call magic tricks or magical entertainment or stage magic or secular magic, which in the last few years there is an ongoing literature exploring this, this transition. So when did it happen that magic from this kind of scary, otherworldly, supernatural thing became a more secular, more a safer, uh, mundane uh, craft or art form. So historically, magic uh, has, you know, there is plenty of literature about it. It has shamanic origins. So the shamans in their bags of tricks uh, were also performers and in the sense that we mean today. So the shamans could sing, the shaman could dance, uh, a shaman could play the ventriloquist, mm-hmm. could do puppet work. And the shaman also did magic tricks, like in the sense that we mean today. So all of this, and especially the magic tricks, were symbolic representations pointing the fingers towards higher mysteries. Because we know that one of the mainly, probably the main role of the shaman uh, is that of a healer, right? So the moment you are able to show, instead of telling, that you're able to create some, able to conjure up and manage, conjure up the spirits, healing someone and taking the curse or the venom out of this person and materialize into a pebble, into a stone, into a small object. That was a a visual way of showing that you actually did your magic. You, You did your job. So that was, this is a simple example just to, uh, you know, to invite the reflection that doing magic with some sort of purpose or intention, uh, not only for a, a shallow demonstration of skill, can somehow have very deep roots in how our mind works. So if I, as a shaman, if you're able to manifest and to show that if you've been able to capture a spirit, to take a disease, 
out of a person and throw it away or make it vanish. So now you have the vanish of a pebble that from a magician point of view became the vanish of a coin, for example. So what does it even mean to take something and make it vanish? So again, if you see it from a, a very uh, face value level, that's just a demonstration of skill. But at the same time, there is a deeper symbolic layer to this, which again, according to what you are going to make it vanish, you are making a disease vanish. You are making a spirit, an evil spirit vanish. You are making the evil eye vanish from someone. So magic, again, as an art form, has very clear uh, shamanic origins where the magic had a purpose. And the people partaking this kind of ritual, we can call it so, at some point in time, there was some sort of separation of roles or functions. That at some point in time, everything was kind of condensed in the shaman. But at some point in time, the shaman split its own workings into that of a psychologist, into that of a, sh- of a, of a doctor, of a medical doctor, into that of a scientist or a natural magician. So once upon a time, all these roles, and another role is the performer. So there is a very specific book which explores this, what I'm saying in a very precise way. And the book I'm talking about, it's a a kind of an underground classic. Uh, It's called uh, um, The Death and Resurrection Show. And the author is an anthropologist called Rogan Taylor. It's a book from 1984, I think. And uh, the subtitle of the book is From Shaman to Superstar. And somehow it explores the idea that the pattern that connects this historical thread that goes from the shaman to superstar is their use of their mana, is the use of their personal power to engender and to activate and to trigger change, change or transformation. In, the very, in a very loose sense. So how do you use your energy, your magical energy, your mana? You know, let's use specifically this uh, word. How do you use this? For what purpose? Could be healing purpose. And again, after many few centuries uh, of, um, later, it became the power of a superstar in the sense of a, a, guy, a person from the star system, a person whose autographs you crave. You, you crave to take a picture with your own idol. So these people, being larger-than-life characters, they accumulated huge quantities of mana that made this make this a star a star. It makes this person so famous and so even wealthy, uh, but so recognizable on a global scale nowadays. So this has always been a thing. The idea that some people have a higher quantity of mana, if you you know, like in a video game, and that's why mana points is also a metric in video games. <laughs> so when you have a lots of mana, you can make magic happen by any means necessary, even trickery. So in that context, um, the description of the Hodgkin re- Hodgson report of Madame Blavatsky as having achieved a title to permanent remembrance as one of the most accomplished, ingenious, and interesting imposters in history. In other words, a superstar of the 19th century, right? The 19th century spiritual mm-hmm. uh, scene. Boom. That's that's exactly what you're saying. Um, now, I'd love to talk a little bit more about this uh, medical stuff before we move on, because it seems to me that there's, there's a, a little 
unacknowledged kernel of magic hiding within modern materialist allopathic medicine. And that is because modern materialist medicine is honest enough to admit that the placebo effect is a real thing. Mm-hmm. And often the placebo effect, and the placebo effect for anyone who's not familiar with it, is the fact that when you give people a drug for a certain illness in the form of a little pill, it will work a certain percentage of the time. Mm-hmm. But if you also give the same people an identical looking little pill that is nothing, it's just sugar, they'll also get better. And they'll get better statistically more than if they had been given nothing, even though they are being given nothing. So this points to some mechanism within the human being to cause healing actively. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes the effect is not as strong as the drug, and that means you've got a, you're onto a good drug, right? That actually does what it's supposed to do. But the placebo effect can be very strong indeed. Mm-hmm. And taking that as a point of of setting out to when we're looking at the shaman as healer, right? We're going to want the shaman. So presumably the the reason that the placebo is especially effective is that the guy in the white doctor coat Mm -hmm. with the stethoscope does his ritual or her ritual and says, I'm a doctor, I've examined you, and now I'm giving you this pill and it's going to solve your problem. And that triggers Mm -hmm. the placebo effect. The shaman equivalent of that surely is taking the illness out of your body and making it into a little bit piece of meat or a stone and then making it vanish right before your eyes. And you're like, bam, I'm healed. And that is going to kick the placebo effect into overdrive. The point being, I guess, for me that that is a situation. And we can set aside the, the idea of can magicians make it rain or can magicians, um, you know, teleport themselves and do all this kind of so-called impossible stuff. For the moment, and just talk about the world of human health, human consciousness. Blatantly, magic is at least somewhat real in that realm, right? Mm-hmm. And it has to be done effectively. So there's ma- magical skill, which you you can't just call it fraud, or at least if mm-hmm. you just call it fraud, it, it you're missing something that's going on there. Yes, uh, yes. So calling, um, you know, the use of first of all, I totally. Uh, get and agree on the connection of, about the placebo effect uh, which again it's a thing it's a, so even the materialistic driven today's science agrees on that right mm. so not only the placebo effect there is also kind of the flip effect which is the nocebo effect which can again it's a kind of the flip side the dark side of it so if the placebo effect can have a positive effect on you also, the nocebo can have a negative effect on you. So even if I say or do something, framing it as something bad or negative happening to you, it has the same weight of the placebo effect. So you can have effect on people just uh, even using words. I mean, not just words as, you know, Rudy, one of my favorite quotes by Rudyard Kipling is that words are still the most powerful drugs used by mankind which I believe it boils down a real, you know, timeless piece of wisdom for us, you know, uh, speaking animals, talking animals, talking apes. So I think that the key word here is effect, which also ties with our, you know, the connection of being a magician. So as a magician, magicians, we use these two categories, which is the effect and the method or the modus operandi or the trick, which is typically called the trick. Got so it. the effect is what the people, the audience perceives. Like, here is an elephant disappearing. Poof, that's the effect. Here is a coin appearing. That's the effect. 
the trick or the modus operandi is how you get it done. What is the technology? What is the, the technical means? How do you do it, right? That's the trick. So these two things are separate, are separate in the eye of the, of the spectator, but clearly they are connected. So as a spectator, you're only supposed to enjoy and to witness the effect, which is the end result of the trick, which is the way to get there, right? Now, again, I believe that the word trick, this dichotomy is useful to, to talk about this issue, uh, but very often the trick is kind of diminished and the word itself, trick, is almost sounds like, like a gimmick, like a cheap way to get there. While if we substitute the word trick with the word technology in its deepest etymological roots of how you get something done. So a technology, it's a process, it's a piece of knowledge that will allow you to do something, to achieve a goal. A skill so, set. Technology is a, is a more noble word in this sense than trick, which is sound like a more shallow, uh, you know, easy to do, you know, trickery uh, in a sneaky way. So in this sense, even what Madame Blavatsu is, used to do or other, again, gurus or uh, from different school of thought or practice, the trick is a way to invite the learner, the student, the practitioner to get some sort of insight, to get some sort of knowledge or gnosis. So it's a very direct way of producing a moment of higher consciousness, if you wish. Okay. So even kind of the Zen master with its stick, just hitting the student on the head at the right moment and as the story goes, and in that moment, the, the student reached enlightenment, which is always a very amusing way of putting it. Mm. So that's a trick. The stick on the head, it's a trick, but its end result, if it works, it's magical. Yeah. So when we use the word trick, it's almost a way to dim- of diminishing the value of the end result, which is the effect. Because, hey, you just use a stick, that was a trick. Yes, and the final result was real. So when we talk about magic being somehow real, I, my way of framing it is that, yes, you're using a trick. You're using trickery. You're using a more or less elaborate design, psychological principles, uh, slate of hand, language trickery, or some sort of mix of all of these ingredients. However, if you're playing your cards right... The final result, which we can you know, as, use as a litmus test, the final result somehow should engender some mix of wonder, astonishment, mystery, awe. If it works, this final result is real. Just like when you're watching a movie that you know that the images, that the people on the screen are not actually dying. These people are actors in some studio. So they're not, nobody's actually dying or, you know, full of blood and things like this. This is theatric. It's a theatrical representation. However, if it's done well, and again, that's a big if, the final effect, the joy it produces, the sadness it produces, the whole spectrum of emotions that you can access through a well-designed and well-made movie, even in a theater, that's result, that effect is real. 
And again, if you cry, that so the trick is a, is a, is a device to activate and to produce wonder. Just like a movie is a device in a two hours time frame, more or less, it's going to trigger a whole range of emotions. These emotions are real, and while you enjoy them, you're totally into it. And that's a magical moment. Does it make sense? Absolutely. Does this kind of resonances make sense to you? Absolutely. Um, I wonder, I think of something that Alan Moore said somewhere, and I'm not going to quote mm-hmm. him exactly, but he's, he said something like, the place where the laws of magic definitely function is in the human mind. Um, mm-hmm. So, again, you can't necessarily make it rain, but you can do all kinds of interesting stuff with human consciousness. And that on the fir- it, at first sounds a little bit maybe like, oh, magic is just fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. But then when you stop and think, where do we draw the exact line between the human mind and the so-called reality that it is witnessing? And that becomes much mm-hmm. more difficult because we're, you know, any psychologist or neurologist or scientist who works on consciousness will tell you, well, you're kind of generating this reality yourself. Yeah, that's a reductionist approach, which I don't buy into. Yeah, uh, but but so, yeah. it's difficult to say where consciousness stops and reality mm-hmm. starts, right? Mm-hmm. And if you don't believe that, let's go back to the placebo effect. Okay, your body is made of stuff, it's made of atoms, whatever. Your mind is, we'll just bracket the mind and say we don't know what the hell it is, but you, you have some awareness of it because it's you. But it can clearly affect the body. I mean, first of all, you can make your hand move, but secondly, you can heal yourself, right? And this has been uh, demonstrated so many times that even the most reductionist doctors who would like to ignore it can't ignore it. So they have to just grudgingly admit that it's true. So Mm -hmm. at least vis-a-vis your body, there is no hard line between your consciousness and your physical uh, world that you're in. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, You know, there is a... What comes to my mind is a a title of a book by uh, Rupert Sheldrake from a few years ago, The Expanded Mind. You know, one of the things that really stuck with me, if you're looking at at an object at a distance, like even a mile away, the question is, is your mind stretching a mile? Because actually the fact that you're actually capturing an object with your eyesight, but somehow your mind is over there also, right? Yeah. Or you can send your mind in space through a telescope. Or you can send your mind in the inner depth of your psyche or solar mind, however we want to frame it. You know, of course, there are all, all kinds of reductionist explanations to this. It's not, your mind is not stretching. It's your, just your, the mechanism of your eye, which is going a mile away. And if you are short-sighted, it's going to be 500 meters. I mean, what are we talking about? So there are all kinds of rational... You can make a, a rational explanation about everything, which is power, you know, part of the power and charm of our rational mind, but then becomes self-referential. So again, being a reductionist, being a materialist nowadays, uh, I believe it's just nothing to be proud of. It's just being plain ignorant. There is plenty of evidence if you want to seep through it. First of all, if you are intellectually curious enough if you want to go the, down that rabbit hole, so there is plenty of evidence, but not everybody's interested in to poke in there. Not everybody has the means and the tools to actually understand that kind of research. And so you can make a point, and it's easy to dismiss 
all of this conversation as bullshit, as, you know, wishful thinking or just because you want to believe, just because we like magic, so we find reasons to have this conversation and to say that magic is real and whatnot. Hmm. Okay. So that's we're not talking about this. Yeah, uh, uh, but, but yes, yeah. What I what I find uh, this this brings us back to where I think this conversation actually is, where we're we're playing with the idea of magic and the idea of reality, and not really defining either of them that fully, such that we can really come up with a concrete separation. Like there's this ambiguity to magic, which is precisely why it's so fascinating it seems to me mm-hmm. um, yeah i agree you know, part of the fascination is the ambiguity of it but not everybody reacts to the ambiguity in the same way meaning that for some people can be again a, it's a comfortable ambiguity a comfortable uncertainty for others it's just a turn off because it's too much this is kind of threatening and challenging your your worldview so again it kind of, there is a spectrum i have a, a really interesting anecdote about that, it seems to me, which I think you'd find interesting. I have a friend uh, who's a GP, a, a doctor. Shout out to mm-hmm. Amy. And I was chatting with her. And, you know, part of, obviously, part of what a doctor does is you know, something shamanistic. They they have what's called the bedside manner. So they ideally are, are good at eliciting, um, you know, sympathy and and sort of helping the person feel comfortable and able to talk about what's wrong with them. And this is part of the process of healing, of course, right? Mm-hmm. It's not going to make your cancer go away, but it's it's part of the whole thing. But uh, she told me, so she works for the National Health Service in England. She has some patients who come in again and again. There's nothing physically wrong with them, but they have something wrong with them and they don't know what it is and it's, it never goes away. And she thinks what she should do as a doctor is give them a sugar pill, like a placebo. She should just be able to prescribe them a placebo and that's going to solve their problem. She's not allowed to. Now, if we stop and think about that for a minute, if the National Health Service recognizes the placebo effect as effective, which it does, what is the methodology? What's the rationale there for not allowing a doctor to prescribe a Mm -hmm. placebo? It seems to me it's a kind of defense mechanism, a kind of like... We are not magicians, you know. Mm. We are rational, even if we're doing something that is irrational. We're making an irrational rule that is actually harming people potentially so as to kind of hold on to our position as rational with bands of iron. That is a very, very interesting uh, scenario. That's a, very interesting, that's a very interesting story. Makes total sense. And, uh, I, you know, my way of framing it is that many people, I even people in power, so to speak, in power of our materialistic, scientifically ideological ladder of whatever your power means, are kind of afraid of magic because maybe at some level of of intuition, they understand it works and it's real and uh, it's a power that needs to be managed. But like many power, it's not, you know, it's not completely on you to manage it. Some right. forces go beyond our control. Mm-hmm. So we like to think we are in charge, but maybe sometimes we are not. Uh, you know, this is one of the lessons from the trickster. So we are in the in trickster land. Magic is a tricky, elusive, powerful thing that doesn't lend itself to complete control. Mm. And that's a, a whole other conversation. But again, the idea of the doctor not being allowed to use non-formalized protocols 
and to administer a placebo, that tells you that's a, you know, it's a very eloquent story. You, you, look, there is a quote that I mean, this is, I believe it's appropriate, it's always appropriate to mention, a piece of quote by Aleister Crowley, who wrote that it is immaterial whether these forces exist or not, but by doing certain things, certain results will follow. Mm. End of the story. This is pretty much it. So whether you believe it or not, if you do certain things, some effects are going to result. And again, even talking about words, if you say certain words at the right moment, you are going to engender certain results. I mean, it's as simple as that. Yeah. So in this sense, magic is not only lives in, yeah, I mean, all of us, we live in, in many different domains, but very often we spend time in the intersection of our shared reality, like we are doing right now, having our conversation. So while we're having this conversation, this is for both of us is completely real. And for the people who are going to listen to this at some point is going to have some sort of reality as well. If it resonates, if it makes sense uh, to their ears in that specific moment in time. So again, the words that we use shape our reality to a deeper extent than we generally acknowledge on a daily basis. So even bringing our conscious attention to this topic, trying to unravel what all of this means, it's another way of injecting our energy and attention to the topic of magic. And uh, it works the same way for people who believe in it, be the placebo effect, the nocebo effect, a magic show. All of these things are somehow on a map and all of them have their own reality in their own way. So I'm just coming, I just, I'm just back from London where I had the, the, the chance to, to go see Darren Brown's latest show. I guess you know who Darren Brown is. Yeah, yeah, he's a he's like a big, who, yeah. um, he does big scale illusions by social engineering, right? He like convinces he, this people. This is one way of putting it, yes. Yeah, he became very famous and he's very well respected in the magician's community. He's an innovator, but again, the kind of playground he plays on is the mind. Uh, so what, to, what can, to what extent you can not only influence people, you can create um, whole pieces of reality for an entertainment reason, for the time of a theater show for two hours, but while he's on stage and the things he's able to create with this kind of mind games are pretty staggering. And so it was a good show, it, yeah? Was it good? It was a terrific show. So I would say it's one of my favorite. I, I've been following his career for uh, for many years now. So I think I've seen all all the shows that he created. And I can also witness the trajectory of his artistic path. I would say this the last show uh, is really something uh, special. All of this to say that the tricks that he used, again, if we want to use this word, which I'm not a big fan of, many of these are on some sort of psychological playground, all of them happening through language, the end result moves you to tears. And you have an intimate experience that is catalyzing, that he designed for you as an individual and as a collective audience, which is fucking amazing. So... Magic exists. When you exit the show, you recognize him being a consummate showman, 
There is a lot of artistry. He's very famous. He's super famous, especially in the UK. So he has a huge uh, personal power because people people want to see him. People trust him. People love him dearly, and very rightfully so. And I am one of them. And when you see doing his him doing his own thing, he's using tricks. He's also pretty much he's a skeptic. He's kind of even on the debunking side of the spectrum. So. Right. He starts, uh, you know, he starts inviting people to telling people what the Barnum effect is. And you know, I, I guess you know what it is. For but for the rest of the audience, it's this kind of psychological effect that if you read a piece of a paragraph, typically the horoscope, there are verba- pieces of verbalization that can kind of apply to you know most of the people. Everybody could relate to it. Like you are kind of an outgoing person. You are a kind of a uh, you like to be surrounded by people most of the time, but you also like time by yourself. Yeah, this yeah. is such a general statement that most of the people could relate to it, right? So he just starts the show, and again, no spoilers about this, but just to give you a sense that he starts inviting people, just kind of telling them, hey. There is this very non-psychological ploy, gimmick. If you say things in such a general way, that could be applied virtually to anyone, right? So once we are on the same page, this is kind of the opening of the show, and then things start to happen that even if you know that you are potentially gillable and can fall for this very non-psychological principle then the rest of the show takes off because now you know that something else is happening here. Told from a guy who just up front tells you, I have no specific power, I'm not a psychic, I'm just a showman, and this is a show, period. So uh, I found this pretty fascinating. I love it. Um, You know, that actually, to me, has a point of connection back with the theosophists because some of the letters that you know there's there was a lot of argument uh, a lot of debunking going on in the 19th century about what the theosophical society was doing and spiritualism more generally and one of the reasons for that is because it seems to me uh this was an era when applied science was king and everyone thought that mm-hmm. applied science is the future and it's we've we finally cracked the code you know there was actually a unironically yeah. a a big conference held, I think in Berlin in the 19th century, where top scientists from around the world got together to discuss the problem of whether we've basically figured out all of physics and science, and is there anything more to work on? Probably not, right? So these people were serious. They were unironically asking this question. Okay, that's the the era. And so spiritualism, the seance, the movement of seances and uh, all these kind of... um, Apports from beyond, things materializing, all this kind of stuff, I think took, like many what we might call religious movements, was very much in dialogue with the, the science of the day. So in the same way that mm-hmm. when astrology, Hellenistic astrology, as we know it, arose in Greco-Roman Egypt in maybe the second, third centuries BCE, they were mapping their uh, worldview onto like the most up-to-date geocentric cosmology available at the time. It's up to date. It's scientific. You see this again and again and again. So nowadays you have, you know, any number of spiritual movements that throw the word quantum around because it sounds really modern and scientific. So the spiritualists in the era of the telegraph, in the era Mm -hmm. of long distance written communication and literacy and stuff were producing 
messages from beyond and written letters that appear out of nowhere. Okay, it's modern, it's scientific, great. But when the debunking started of Blavatsky and co, one of the pieces of evidence that was brought against her was, and I promise I do have a point here, was that she had said to a, in a few letters here and there, yes, we might do a bit of sleight of hand or a bit of uh, trickery, so-called, but the point is not the trickery. The point is to use that to draw people into the spiritual quest, which is much higher mm-hmm. than uh, than any kind of, you know, manifestations of spirits and stuff like this. Now, you can you can then turn around and say, no, it isn't. Your spiritual quest is stupid. Fuck you, Blavatsky. That's one take you can have on it. But she doesn't think so. And uh, the whole of modern, what we might call new age spirituality, which is very much an outflowing of ideas from the Theosophical mm-hmm. Society, would also disagree, you know. So... Another thing she said openly, and that was very programmatic among the theos- theosophists, was to use fiction. And so in these mm-hmm. theosophical periodicals, of which there are many, um, there were always these cool stories of people having adventures with ghosts and sort of using psychic powers and stuff like this. To use fiction specifically to kind of get people drawn in and interested, right? So you could say that's fraud, but that she's open about it. She's saying, no, no, it's not fraud. It's a means of kind of... Um, opening people's minds to possibilities Mm -hmm. and creating a space for the miraculous. Okay. That rather long-winded peroration was basically trying to get to this idea that she's doing something kind of like Darren Brown, right? Except he's saying, I'm going to create something that seems very miraculous to you and seems to kind of break the laws of reality as we know them. Mm -hmm. But it's just a show. Mm -hmm. And she's saying, I'm going to do some stuff that seems to break the laws of reality as we know them, whether it's this fictional story of someone having an adventure with a ghost or this magical letter that just appeared out of nowhere. And look, it's written in purple ink and it's from the Ascended Masters. But it's just a religion or it's just a spiritual movement higher than religion. So the context, the the context that lies, but they're both saying there's a kind of effect being created here, right? They're both being relative. I mean, Darren Brown's being totally open. He's saying, I'm doing an effect in a, in a show context. She's saying, I'm, yeah, maybe doing an effect in the context of something much more important than a show or than, mm-hmm. than anything really, which is the spiritual quest, the, which is occultism in the kind of theosophical mm-hmm. sense, right? So there is a similarity there. It's a kind of laying your cards yes. on the table and saying there's nothing, you know, nothing underhanded going on here, no secrets, and then mm-hmm. producing the effect. Yes, I totally get it. Just to be uh, more, um, to do more justice to the Darren Brown parallel, uh, again, without making any spoiler, yes, he said this is a theatrical event. It's going to end in two hours. However, and that's my interpretation as a spectator, not as a magician, the ripple effect of the show goes beyond when the show is over. And that's the thing that I really value. So, again, the playground, this is a show. It's a theatrical experience. I am a showman. However, like a good movie or a good book, when you close the last page of a book, if the magic worked, the book is going to haunt you for the good or bad when the book reading experience is over. So that's where the ripple effect, there is a long tail of a peak experience. We can call, again, the the two-hour show or the trick, that if it works, it's magic. If it's really valuable, if there is meaning there, 
the long tail is going to stay with you and it's potentially transformative. And it's going, so the, the limited experience is going to catalyze something that after the show, like after a good book, you're going to be different forever. So you're set yourself on a different path. Mm. So Madame Blavatsky's tricks, if they work their magic, however, they, whatever she did, set people on a spiritual quest or somehow reinforced it or opened up new possibilities, as you said, that are real. There are, that these are true. Yeah. So you're setting yourself on a new path, like, you know, like a sliding door moment where once you had the experience, you were on a new track and hopefully we... a better one and more fun one more interesting one well that's the question right because some people are going to say that the whole uh experience the whole influence of the theosophical society was negative some people want to say that other people are going to say it was massively positive other people are going to be unaware that it even had a major influence on western culture but mm -hmm. uh when they become aware of just i mean you know from indian independence to women's suffrage to all of new age spirituality to you know the fact that in polling data, something like one in 10 uh, British people believe in reincarnation. Why? Mm -hmm. We just do. Well, the reason you do historically is because of the Theosophical Society. Yeah, All of these huge ripples yeah, yeah. that no one is, well, it's not that no one's aware of them. They've uh, they've become sort of forgotten secrets of uh, open history. Mm -hmm. uh, if that isn't a, a magical kind of effect in the real world, I don't I don't know what is, you know? Absolutely. I mean, yes, 100%. Uh, so the fact that we, most of the people don't know where this, the, the origins of these ideas, where it comes from, at some point someone conceived these ideas, they spoke about it, they wrote books about it, sprinkled with a dose of tricks of some sort, but then it became part of the fa fabric of our today's reality. Absolutely. Uh, how magical is that? that right? Yeah, all right, there you go. Um, Ferdinando, there's one, there's one thing I wanted to talk to you about, uh, slightly on a different tangent, but I think something that you'll have interesting things to say about. This is that, you know, when I started doing this podcast project, I wasn't that interested in magic, really. I w of course, I'm interested in magic, I'm interested in occult sciences, I'm interested in mysticism, all this stuff, but my kind of deeper interest was much more with the, what you might call the mystic traditions, you know, the sort of exploring mm -hmm. consciousness in an extreme way traditions. But I've become much more interested in magic in the last year, especially because I've talked to some specialists on uh, late antique magic in the primary sources, mm -hmm. the, the incantation bowls, the early magical texts that we find within Christianity, late, late, uh, you know, early rabbinic texts, all this kind of stuff. And it's fascinating. And there is a phenomenon within these texts that I find deeply fascinating. I'm not sure it's been discussed enough. And I think you would be a perfect person to discuss it with. So in the Sefer HaRazim, which is our earliest, mm -hmm. what you might call Jewish grimoire, right? Uh, yeah. Jewish magic book, which which is a huge list of uh, amazing things you can do. A lot of the stuff you can do is medical. A lot of the stuff has to do with getting rid of demons, right? That's That's normal. But there's a few ones which seem to... And, and you're using the power of angels to do stuff for you. So um, the magic is real, in quotes. The magic, their angels are real, and they're more powerful than you, and they can do all kinds of stuff. Okay, that's the worldview. Some of the, tr the uh, effects 
are produced whereby you get the angel who has real power to create an illusion. So, for example, you can fill a house with fire that does not burn. And mm-hmm. the, the reason for doing this, the reason that's specifically given in the text is to convince people that you have magical power. So you're using real magic to make a fake magical effect or a, an illusion. Okay, that's interesting to me. There's another one where if you're returning from battle, you can make uh, a huge armed escort appear, also illusory, who are coming with you. So you look like you're a, a badass conquering hero coming home. So I think, well, why don't you get the angels just to make a real army going with you? You know, No, you get them to create an illusion. Okay, if we fast forward in time, I find this interesting connection appears again and again between texts of real magic where... You are in a worldview where there are uh, powerful non-human entities. They have the ability to do what you just call magic, right? They can just make stuff happen, like in Harry Potter. But they also are dealing in illusions sometimes. So, for example, we have a, a wonderful book by Abu al-Qasim al-Iraqi called The Sources of Truth, Uyun al-Haqaiq. And this is mm-hmm. an interesting mix of kind of occult scientific magic. So it's got some alchemy stuff in it, transmutations. It has the creation of a homunculus. So Mm -hmm. you can uh, create a a living sentient being in a laboratory. Mm -hmm. It's also got uh, a bunch of strange party tricks, like um, (laughs) creating a lamp with a wick made of pressed ants' eggs, which if someone is holding this lamp, it will cause them to fart loudly until they put it down nice is that magic is that science i don't know what the hell that is but it's cool and then there's illusions based on and this brings us back to alchemy actually based on knowledge of sciences so for example a way to chemically treat fabric so that it's uh, fireproof so that you can be like here burn me go ahead burn me see it doesn't hurt see i'm fireproof and like so it gives you the appearance of having magical power and there's even some tricks based on magical devices there's a or mechanical uh, stagecraft type stuff like boxes with mirrors in them so you look in the box and it looks like there's a room in there with people walking around and stuff we find a lot of this stuff in these magical texts as well more broadly so my intuition here is that people who are involved in magic and even let's say someone who is thinking in a thought world whereby magic is just real in that if by magic we mean being able to get supernatural entities or superhuman entities to do stuff for you, which breaks the normal laws of what is possible. So you can get an angel and he will make you fly. You can get an angel and he will uh, allow you to see what's happening a thousand miles away. All this kind of stuff. Like what you can kind of unambiguously call real magic, right? These same authors are really interested in what we would call, in modern terms, stage magic, illusions, the craft of uh, right. of creating effects through mechanical means. And mm-hmm. they don't seem to think that these are two different genres. That's wonderful. This is really a terrific piece. Um, I was not actually aware of this treatment of, uh, uh, you know, you invoking angels or powerful entities to create illusions instead of just the real thing. Yeah. Okay, this I found this utterly fascinating, and my way of re, you know, kind of remapping this in my own terms 
the, the, the thing that comes to my mind, it's a, it's a wonderful metaphor that uh, one of my friends and mentor, a very well-known magician called Eugene Berger, uh, used to say. Uh, and he said that the house of magic has many rooms, period. So in his way, of, of course, it was kind of, you know, it was a, a twinkle of an eye uh, towards the fact that magic is not only trickery, it's not only stage magic, it's more, there's more to that. But at the same time, I found it wonderful that in the same book, you can talk about angels, about spirits, about illusions, about tricks, because all of them somehow belong in this very big mansion or the house of magic with different rooms, every room furbished in its own peculiar way, but with some sort of underlying threats, a labyrinthine, it's a maze-like kind of house where you can get lost. Uh, and you you can lose the plot, uh, you know. Sometimes, uh, just to paraphrase Philip K. Dick, uh, sometimes you know a reasonable reaction to all of this is just to go insane. So you can lose yeah. your way into the hall of mirrors that the house of magic is. However, if you have good maps, you can find your way to navigate through this maze. But you know, to me, it boils down that there is no way to define. So any definition of magic it's uh, inherently limited and uh, incomplete because we are trying to con- to juggle with something big and complex and the fact that after a few thousand years, some books are really read and published so that we are still having this conversation, I believe it goes beyond the mere historical interest. So we have some sort of intuitive understanding that these ideas are somehow relevant uh, and are part of our day-to-day functioning, even if we don't know where they come from. And then some people, being showmen, being Darren Brown or other uh, uh, showmen officially titled as entertainers, they have the craftsmanship and the artistry to harness these energies, these ideas, for an entertainment context and invite people in to have a taste in a limited and safe space-time to savor what we are talking about. But I believe that the the underlying core, the underlying energies, it's the things that we've been talking about which are not easy to pinpoint. And as time goes by, they are still elusive, but they are still there. They are still there they affect our day-to-day life. They are part of our psyche, of our collective psyche, of our collective consciousness, of our collective way of making sense of reality. Uh, however educated or uh, uh, civilized we think we are, you know, magic is there. It's part of our functioning. I believe that an interesting book on the topic uh, it's the, the so-called the myth of disenchantment by Jason... Um, a hard to pronounce last name. Uh, yes, hard to pronounce last name, but I will, I will do justice to him and find and uh, maybe type his name in, in we'll, somewhere in the... We will, of course, yeah. put it in the bibliography to this interview. Yes, yeah. but the point is that I, I think that the value of the book, you know, it's, it's the famous known, the, the disenchantment of the world as the notion attributed to Max Weber, 
that you know the modern world uh the price that we had to pay that we lost the enchantment of living in the world i mean the, the this the myth of disenchantment i believe makes a very uh eloquent point that this is actually not true because at yeah. some le- at some level of our understanding of reality even scientists officially formally scientists somehow at the an under more or less cover or underlying belief in the existence of higher planes of reality. And again, everybody called it, in, used different tags, different language, but again, there is more to reality than what we can measure. And the universe will always be not only stranger than we imagine, but stranger than we can imagine. Ferdinando Buscema, stay esoteric. I think that we can't do otherwise. 